0: Hey everybody, it's Brian. I didn't run a podcast last week. I thought I was going to have Killer Mike uh, to talk about the world and what's going on. And I think I'm talking to Mike on Thursday. This episode was recorded uh, about 10 days ago um, with Corb Lund, who's amazing, incredible songwriter and a great guest. We don't really talk about the world. Uh, I, I hope to do that with Mike soon. And um, if this is an hour that uh, takes your mind to a different place and exposes you to a great artist that maybe you don't know so much about, I hope it serves some purpose. So uh, here's my conversation with the great Corb Lund. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, Corb Lund, is... Unique in, in this way to people on the moment. Most people who who come on this show, I I have met them, I've known their work for a really long time, uh, I know a lot about them and and Corb, I wrote and I just wrote a cold note to your people because uh, somehow I didn't know your music and I'm everything you do is what I'm into, man. And um, <laughs> I, a few months ago only, I heard a, a old men some, somewhere. And from there found your agricultural tragic playlist that you made. Oh yeah. And when I saw this playlist that had Chris LeDoux, Mellencamp, Tom Russell, uh, and Fred Eaglesmith on it, I was like, well, this Canadian guy from Alberta who grew up, um, the son of a vet, uh, and, and this New York atheist Jew are like brothers somehow. So, uh, <laughs> We, the, because you're into and you write about all this stuff that fascinates me, man. So I've now done a deep dive um, uh, on on who you are, and I think you're one of the great songwriters walking around. So thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. That's that's high praise. I'm a, I'm a fan of your work, also.
0: Uh, well, thank. Well, this was the other thing when I found losing lately, gambler. I I, I and and uh, started listening to the songs like a game in town like this, and knowing that I've written about gambling for 25 years. I couldn't kind of believe that we had never crossed paths creatively, you know. Well,
1: I'm assuming if you were you you were the writer, one of the main writers on, on Rounders, is that right?
0: Yeah, my writing partner. I so I do everything with a partner, my lifelong okay. best friend, and we wrote Rounders together. Yeah,
1: because you must you must play cards, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay,
1: because it's yeah, it's a pretty inside movie. <laughs> you know what's funny about that that song you mentioned, the a game in town like this. I um as a songwriter, you know. Probably same for you. You have a feeling you're trying to express in a a, a topic or something. And sometimes it comes out a totally different way than you expected. And sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it happens like that and it's a happy accident. But then occasionally you really nail it. And in terms of like what I was trying to get across in that song, like sometimes, like like say, you start with a feeling and it turns into something else, and that's cool too. But this song in particular, I felt for my own I don't know it wasn't particularly commercially successful but in my own for my own inner scorecard I I really nailed the feeling I was trying to get with that song when you played cards way too late and you lost you should have left 2 hours ago that I'm glad you like that one cuz that one that was a special one for me
0: I understand that completely man <laughs> and I think that that song I mean I think that song and a lot of your songs are like cousins to a kind of song that's been being written since the thirties, you know, um, the songs that Bob Dylan sang on world gone wrong, uh, that were kind of have been forgotten in a way and, uh, about rounders, uh, about people living, uh, a kind of, um, uh, a gunslinger type existence as the world is changing around them. And I find that through all your albums, uh, especially yeah, nice. the, the new one, you know, uh,
1: Now, did you get a, a full copy of the new one or have you just heard the singles?
0: No, I got I, I yeah, got a full copy. Oh yeah. Cool. Well, and 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 I have all sorts of places I want to go with this, but uh so so when I listen to this album, I hear this and I think it's a crystallization. I've listened to all your albums now. Like I over the last few months I've done a real deep dive, man, because <laughs> I collect songwriters and I couldn't believe I'd never come across your music. And so I really got deep I- into it. But this album, for me, crystallizes this uh, the kind of duality in the way that you look at the world, which is with a kind of romantic's yearning, but a, a a realist's eye. And um, I, you know, see right from the first song, ninety seconds, but through the whole thing, the Louis Lemoore song, uh, uh, somebody who is grappling with this like legacy that's been passed down about the way men are supposed to be and act these traditional roles, but then a world that has shifted on its axis. And if you don't shift with it, you're fucked in a, in a way. But then in the middle of this album, that's this incredibly deep exploration. There's just this entirely entertaining song that literally could have been in a Bob Wills album, which is the gin and whiskey song. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it over and over. I played it for my 20-year-old daughter. We drove around yesterday, like laughing and giggling during this pandemic, listening to that song five times in a row. How did... <laughs> Can you talk about how that song came to be and what you were going for, and why why you why you decided to include it uh, on this record? Sort of like the purpose that it that it fills
1: that song in particular. Yeah, um, yeah, it's called. Yeah, I, I was happy because I finally got to write one of those songs with a, a parenthetical title. So you know, I think you ought to try whiskey, and then in brackets, I think you ought to try gin. I was happy yeah. about that part. <laughs> but no, it's it's. Um, let's see. It, the, it was supposed to be a throwback to the, the the classic sort of, you know, fighting couple country duets of the ages Conway and, and Loretta yes. and George and Tammy and June and John and uh, Chris and Rita, you know. And yes. my friend that wrote it with me, or she, actually, she didn't write with, that one with me. She just sang it with me. Her name's Jada Dreyer. And she wrote Raining Horses with me. Yes. On the record. And we yes. actually, uh, we were going to try to get a, you know, a dolly or a, or a a famous old country lady to singer to to cut that with me, and she was in the studio because we were writing some stuff. And I just she's a great singer. I just got her to do a demo of it because just so we had a, a placeholder so that I could shop it to you know Barbara Mandrell or whoever.
0: Sure, and, perfect, yeah.
1: And our and Jade had nailed it so well, and we had, we're old friends, and so we had a really good vibe together. And she nailed it, so we were like, shit, this is we probably should just keep this. So we just we just went with her uh, version it was great. But yeah, have you
0: it, sent that track out to radio? Have you sent that track to like country radio because they could play it without kind of understanding in a way what you're putting on.
1: Yeah, no, it hasn't been released yet. We may do that. It's it's going to be the single released in June when the record comes out like at the t- like c- right at the same time the record is released. So that's a good idea. I'll mention that to my people. They, I'm sure they've thought of it. They think of this stuff before I do, but
0: I'm sure that they do cuz I could just totally hear that um on the radio, but also it, it sums up to me because you guys are, yes, you're doing that standard breakup song, but I know from like looking at your Instagram, the kind of stuff you read. So I know that you're completely aware of the meta aspect of <laughs> what you're doing there. And so, right. So, so you are, and, and the way those little asides that the two of you toss at each other. Yes, yeah, it's and, funny, right? <laughs> yeah. Both of you guys are doing it though. And it's, it's both like hewing, and this is what I really want you to talk about, this idea of you're hewing to a certain tradition in the form, but then you're also at the same time kind of commenting on this tradition and on where it fits in the world right now.
1: Yeah, that's true. I, I, I kind of use, uh, I tell people that, well, there's a lot to say. Um, if you've heard our stuff, you know that we sort of draw from all different all different stripes of, um, I, I sort of strip mine roots music, whether it's, we, we borrow from Wayland country rock, we borrow from talking blues folk songs, we borrow from rockabilly, we borrow from Western swing, you know. And I sort of approached the whole thing with a bit of abandon. Uh, I tell people, you know, if you go to a bluegrass festival, you'll run into people who are who are trying to do traditional stuff and freeze dry it and and they bow down to it and, and, you know, make it perfect. And we're not that way at all. Like, I I respect all that stuff and I love it to death. I grew up with it. But I I approach the whole thing with a big dollop of irreverence, too. And I kind of try to use those traditional forms as kind of a launching pad. And it's interesting because you kind of alluded to this, but you can kind of i don't really talk about this with many people actually but yeah. it's funny because you could you can reach different types of people on different levels with it because on the face of it you know that song for example a lot of my tunes are good old shit kicking country tunes right and you can dance to them in the saloon and they people do and there's a simple message there and it's it's uh, easily digestible but then there's there's other levels too like you said like um I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's
0: No, it's not. You can do it cuz you do. it. Here's why you should explain it. Cuz you've been doing this 20 you've been doing this 20 years and I've read only a couple articles that talk about this aspect of what you do, which is the way that you're commenting on the tradition. And you've you wrote about it pretty directly on Louis Lamore. So, I think it's worth talking about, man, to give people in America an understanding of what you're doing.
1: Okay, well we should start a little further back then. So, the deal is my family are all cowboys um from Utah and Nevada. Both sides of my family—my mom's side and my dad's side—and they came up to Alberta, which is just north of Montana in Canada, about 120 years ago, around the turn of the century, and have been ranching there ever since. And they're rodeo people and card players and and uh, roughnecks. And so I come from a very uh, frontiersy, rough and ready sort of background. Yes. And- those people are interesting people it gives me a real cast of characters to write about a ton of my stuff borrows from my ancestors and my my relatives but yeah so uh, I grew up with that on horseback and chasing cattle and the foothills of the Rockies and doing all that stuff and it just seemed normal to me because you know when you grow up with something that's what that's what you are used to yeah, of course and then you know I suppose the world is full of dude ranches because people find that stuff exotic but to me it just seemed normal and when i was about 15 what seemed exotic to me was uh rock and roll so much to the chagrin of my parents i grew my hair long got a gibson les paul and made a bunch of noise for about 10 years in a in an underground rock band called the smalls but the whole time i was sort of writing western content at the same time but you know it's the basic tension in my life and and juxtaposition i guess which makes its way into the writing is that I come from a long line of rural people, and then I've spent most of my adult, adult life in an artistic urban setting. And those, yes. unfortunately, more now than ever, those two sort of value systems <laughs> are opposed to each other.
0: Yeah, and, they're set against each other. Yes.
1: Yeah. And it's sad, really, because there's, re- I guess, there's reasons for that. Like, I feel like rural people have become more, uh, Ensconced in their sort of
0: well, everybody's yeah, the calcified, like kind of calcified in their world views, and then yeah, you're trying right, And on the other, the
1: other side of it. A lot of urban people really have much, much that every generation has less understanding about where their yes. food comes from and, and who's building their roads and, and the practical things of life. And, and I, I kind of have a foot in both worlds and I can see the value of both lifestyles. And I just, I, I lament the fact that they can't get along better. And so, a lot of my stuff touches on those those things so yeah I guess I I sort of look at you know I read a lot sounds like you do too Um, and it's interesting trying to apply more uh, textured themes to to simple uh, genres right like a not that country has to be simple but it often is as a you know old school country music is for the most part designed to be pretty straightforward so it's interesting building levels on top of that and folding in meaning to it it's and i love it it's i i love reading and i love I love reference. I Sometimes I'll end up referencing something in a tune. And I'm like, I bet you nobody's gonna get this, and then one and then one nerd will get it, whether it's about an oil rig or a book I read or a, the functioning yes. of a particular kind of pistol or a, you know something about a particular horse breed or you know I, I really I'm a detail guy. I like putting all those little I guess they call them Easter eggs these days. You know, yeah. little references that only the odd fanatic will get
0: <laughs> well yeah that's i mean that's what day my partner dave and you know the guy I, I do all this stuff with he and i um our 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 tv series is just festooned with that stuff and people yeah. you can your your people will find it you know what i mean and they'll throw something back at you and and then the one the one person who catches it it really means something but it also seems to me so you're doing that for sure i i hear that in the stuff But there's a real postmodern. I I want to, for a second, talk. Stay with the whiskey song, and then I want to go out because. So on the record, for instance, in 90 seconds, you know, the second half of that song gets. In the first half of the song, you're using a a literary device where you're um, you're doing this narration. You're letting us we pick up in Mediores, right? You're you're just telling the story as as we're into it. You're like, hey, buddy, just give me a sec and a half. But by the second half of it, we learn. Hey, wait a second. This guy was a ranger. And what do you expect if you send a guy to learn those skills? and you bring him back and you don't find a way to remediate what you've just done. You can't blame him for, for, for what he does. And you open the record with that. And two songs later, we're in these old gender roles and, and, and this album has, uh, uh themes that hold it together. And I was thinking about a lot about why that, that's whiskey song does what it does in the, in the way that it does. And, 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 and I guess what I'm asking is how, uh, How much are you hoping that these – not just the Easter eggs, which are like these fun specifics, but the – how did you learn, I guess, to trust your audience to figure out what you're doing when you write a song like that? Or are you not thinking about the audience?
1: I'm not really thinking about them. I'm sort of entertaining myself. Yeah. Like when I write a tune and I come up with something that I kind of think is clever and pat myself on the back, I kind of just start grinning. And like sometimes people get it and some people – sometimes they don't but I, I I honestly like people listen to music for different reasons and in our in our case you know it's some people honestly just want to dance right and some people want to hear the they hear they'll just hear the two or three main uh, phrases in the song and pick up on those and then other people who are more deep about it go deeper and, and and figure out you know you know the spring you know Springsteen's um, I, yeah the what's the song um, what's it called I'm blanking? Uh,
0: which, which, morning. like, what album? What period of time? It's I know the, his work really the born well.
1: Born in the USA, one cool rock and daddy in the USA.
0: Yeah, born in the USA. I was playing yeah, it yeah, with yeah. my my son, and I were talking about the lyrics of that song last night. Go talk, yeah. Well, it's
1: interesting because, like, I'm saying, you know, obviously, I think I'm. I would bet money that I don't know eighty percent large percentage yeah. of people who rock out to that tune, all they hear is. Born in the US, you know, and there's, there's a real subtext to it. There's a real um, subversive, not subversive, but sympathetic subtext to it, right? Because it's, it's actually kind of critical of the Vietnam policy, right? It's super critical.
0: Oh, in fact, when you go, so for real, Corb, for real, last night, I picked up my son. He was isolating in the city and, and we're outside of the city. So I picked him up. And uh, I felt like here, it's weird. I wonder, it's because I was listening to your music and I heard something, but I put that album on and specifically to go through the mute, that, those lyrics. And I went through those lyrics last night and there's not one positive line in the whole song, man, you know? Yeah. And, and, that's, and
1: that's great because like a million people are out there rocking out to it, <laughs> like, <laughs> Waving the flag. And, and, and there there is that element to it too. And there's nothing wrong with, I think it's a very patriotic stance to take like in terms of, criticizing the policy of your own government that's a patriotic thing but yes but i don't think a lot of people are picking up on that so there's different levels right so when i'm writing my tunes the nosebleed stuff that i'm getting off on isn't necessarily the like i also take pride in my ability to craft a song that's you know catchy and and is, is groovy and all that and all that and all that shit too which is important for a lot of people but i the nosebleed stuff that really turns my crank is probably not the same stuff that is appealing to the majority of my listeners.
0: Right. So when you look out from the stage, do you, can you see the sort of like, I mean, some people are just singing along to old men, just purely on taking it on a face value. Some people understand the tradition that that song's coming out of um, and what you're talking about. And then some people on all these songs will really understand like in the whiskey song, you know, Some people, you're saying, we'll take it for face value. Well, of course, a woman is saying she doesn't want to get frisky. It's much to her regret. But then the song is asking us a question as a listener, which is, why are these these still the roles that we're pretending that we're uh, in, where gin makes someone act too fancy and whiskey does this other thing? I mean, you're asking a lot of questions in that context, but you're saying you're only asking those questions, they're kind of available to whoever wants them, but you don't need to ask those questions to dig the music.
1: No, not at all and and like uh, I think people appreciate art for different reasons, right some people just like the color that the guy chose some people like yeah. the subject matter some people like the way he used brush strokes, you know whatever and I think it's you know here's the thing like in my trade, a chorus is a chorus is a powerful thing, right like a catchy chorus is like very powerful tool and so, you can sell a lot of shit with a catchy like like the Springsteen song we just talked about, right? You can sell a lot of stuff with a with a a strong chorus. And so that's one of the main tools. The catchiness of the music is is one layer that's very powerful. And then and then the layers of meaning that you decide to build on top of it is, you know. You know, an- another aspect to this is you're talking about diving deep deeply earlier and i i do that with subject matter like all the cowboy stuff that i read about and all the western stuff that mostly comes from family background but i read a lot of military history songs too and those are completely from reading i have none of that in my background but i've also got songs about oil riggers and i've got songs about card playing and and whatever the topic is i tend to go pretty deep and and have a try to get a pretty good understanding of it if it's not my background i try to have a full immerse myself in it so that yes. so that those details are there for people to pick up on. And because I have such a diverse range of topics, like I don't write many love songs, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> yes. so, but like, you know, the, the carpenters, the, the four carpenters in the audience will totally pick up on my line about the nail gun or something. And then in another song, all the veterans will pick up on the, the resonances about, uh, you know, the, 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 the VA or something. And then in another song the guys who are working cowboys will pick up on the stuff I just said about the guy's cinch, you know? So it depends on what the topic is. Particular segments of the audience will identify with that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because sometimes like I hear that line in 90 seconds about, uh, let's get the Elks cause we got the badges and, and I, I, I've never hunted, but like, I've read a lot about, about it and I've watched a bunch of stuff. And like, I loved the detail of that. Like, Hey, it's elk season. We're allowed to take two elk. Let's just take the elk and get the fuck out of here. Yeah. yeah, uh, I
1: like that line too.
0: <laughs> but like the way you just throw that line casually, you know, uh, a lot of people won't don't know what the fuck that is about, what the hell you're talking about. But for me, it, it's like that eye that you have for detail. Um, it, it gave, and, and it's, it's that Hemingway thing, which is you obviously know a ton about the kind of guys It's funny right that song is sort of a cousin to why are we in vietnam the the mailer novel yeah, yeah. Uh, have you re- you've read that book but it, it's oh, kind no, of no, a- I oh you'd really dig it uh mailer wrote this book why are we in vietnam and it's these two guys two friends off in the, the woods they never meant he never ever ever mentions the word vietnam uh, they oh, never really? go to war. Yeah, it's amazing. It's huh. it's one of his best books. Uh, okay. a lot of Mailer stuff feels old now, but when that book never feels old and and it's these cuz it's the, it's the nature of the American male in this in this situation. Um I'll look
1: I'll put but, that on my list.
0: Yeah. These little but but it is the 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 way you use these details Why do you think you chose songwriting and not um, not story writing?
1: Uh, live the energy of live music is just so compelling. Like I, I, that was the first thing that really like I used to rodeo when I was a kid and yeah. all that, and but but music was the first thing that really grabbed me outside of my own upbringing. Like my family weren't musical. They liked music. They played music in the house, but like on record. But they weren't musical in the least. Um, so music, music sort of was the first thing that really grabbed me, and and th- that was outside of the home. You know,
0: well, you and I are close to the same age. I'm like two years older than you, I think, or three. What, what? Uh, so what were you listening to? Uh, what were you listening to growing up when you were fourteen and fifteen? Like what my, got you?
1: Yeah, my number one. Well, okay. Before that, my number one to this day, uh, gold-plated record that I'll never get tired of is called Mar- uh, "Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs" by Marty Robbins. Have you right. heard El, yeah. Pas- "El Paso" and all that? I,
0: I only know Marty Robbins because he's on your um, AGTRAG playlist. Okay, <laughs> I don't know his music other than that.
1: Yeah, and that came from my folks. I think the first stuff I got into that was outside of the had roots outside of the home was the Eagles, and yeah. then and then I actually had a buddy who got into you know the the heavy rock of the day the black sabbath and and all that type of thing which is kind of the, the, the direction i ended up going i found that that stuff really really fascinating all the, me
0: too, me too as a kid yep
1: it was very tribal because you go to the shows and it wasn't long like i was from a small t- town well outside of a small town and so we didn't have indie rock shows right like the the first shows i went to i think were you know Big goofy arena rock shows, but then I I moved to the city to go to to music school, and was very quickly introduced to the underground music scene. You know, like you're walking downtown, you see some shitty punk rock poster plastered on a on a on a signpost. Yeah. And you end up going to some weird hall on a Friday night, and it's filled with punk rock people, and it's like a crazy tribal dance, and it was it was almost like religion or something. It was so the indie rock spirit, like the underground punk rock rawness of everything really appealed to me and and but
0: that I, that really grabbed you so you went from but first it was the songwriting stuff like you loved songwriters then and i think black sabbath by the way both dio and ozzy i, I for me the Dio records were right in the sweet spot for me because I was fourteen in nineteen eighty, so I was a big fan of the Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath records.
1: I get so much shit for this from from people who, <laughs> but but Mob Mob Rules and Heaven yeah, and Hell are my yep. favorite two Sabbath albums.
0: Me too, and I get in a lot of shit for. I'm telling totally, dude, I'm not kidding around. When I listen to your records, I was like, this guy and I are have all the same shit. <laughs> like, I, it's so funny. Yeah, because for me, when I heard those records, Sign of the Southern Cross, like the world that Dio was. Um, talking about, I don't love Dio's solo records nearly as much, but there was something about what happened when Tony Iommi wrote those riffs and Dio wrote those words that it just drew drew me in, right? That lineup was especially good too, at that time. Right? Was that Carmen? Was it Carmen Appice was playing the drums? I not think so. Ward? Yeah, I think so. I think so too. Uh, I think so too. Yeah.
1: But uh, that stuff is he's got that he's got that whole you know Dungeons and Dragons thing going on too. Dio, <laughs> right? He's like a yes. little wizard. Little wizard.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, he was.
1: I always thought Ozzy was a cool character. Like, he's obviously, a you know, f- cultural figure. But I, I don't know. I, I always thought Dio's focus was much more yeah. appealing.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't want. We don't have to nerd out on on Sabbath. But I'll say, for me, the weird thing is, I think the best albums any of those people made were. I agree with you. Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules, and then I think Blizzard of Oz is an incredible album. Ozzy's yeah. album with Randy and yeah. and Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sars or whatever yeah. or Bob P- Paisley, or whatever. Th- that was a great. Those were great records. I I've, think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I've drank a lot of beer to a Sweet Leaf or whatever, but yeah,
0: the, of course. Those
1: two, I agree. Those two, what Diary and uh, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman. Those two yeah. records are awesome. Like that, Randy Rhodes and what's the bass play? Is it Daisley?
0: We have Bob Daisley and uh, um, uh, and then Rudy Sarzo. I guess played on the tour, but I think Bob Daisley played on the albums. Okay,
1: yeah, and no, that's and, uh, those. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I in fact, I would uh, again, despite all the shit, I'll take for this. I'll, I'll take those two records over most of the Sabbath records. And I
0: love me Sabbath, too. No, but. me too, man. That's why you and I are the same because we're like from the same place. And then for me, I got into the replacements and all that shit, like right mm-hmm. after that R.E.M. and the replacements, and and then came back to songwriting. So.
1: My in my uh, setting, when I was a kid, there wasn't really any option for, the, the, like, punk rock didn't exist where I lived, and the, we we would catch a whiff of it on television like on a spe- late night special or something, but it wasn't until I moved to a bigger city it was Edmonton actually Edmonton Alberta, where they had kind of a punk scene, and so that's kind of where where I felt I fit in, and then um, yeah, I started writing Western songs. For, near the beginning too so i was sort of blending those two things from the start and i think that's probably why i tell people that i have a lot i have a lot of friends that are in the sort of commercial country world and they yes. have to live in such a box i i couldn't do it but i i spent the formative first number of formative years as a songwriter in a setting where you were encouraged to be as out there and unique and and w- You know strange as you could and trying to make your own sound like in the underground scene you know and so i think i've carried that over to my country songwriting because i'm my default position is always trying to find new sounds and and new ways of putting ideas together that will surprise people and stuff so i think i think that explains if there's any quirkiness to my writing that's that's kind of partly where it comes from i think
0: yeah that that makes sense that you're incorporating all that different stuff when when you were a kid man and you were growing up in that environment that agrarian sort of an environment but you were reading and and, first, how did the reading come into it because a lot of people um it doesn't it's weird even people our age like it wasn't really a part of their lives and then some people it was how did how did you get on with the other kids were you strange and then, yeah. uh, and and then, and then how did the reading come in and what were you reading? You know, what were you reading from 14 to 20?
1: Uh, both of my grandmothers were, they're, they're like archetypes. Both of them were, were, um, proper ladies that, that married cowboys and became school teachers in one room schoolhouses in uh-huh. the prairie.
0: <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
1: My, and my grandmother, I, I don't know. I don't know what the controversy in educational policy was at the time, but I remember as a kid, like before, I don't know, how how old are you when you go to kindergarten? Six or something, I guess? Yeah,
0: five. Five Five or
1: six. So before that, I guess when I was three or four, my grandma was obsessed with me learning phonics because (laughs) apparently the education system had shifted into some other – I don't know enough about it to know what the alternative was, but it was not phonics. Right. And my, gra- my grandma was obsessed with me learning phonics, and she was bound to determine that if they're not going to teach me phonics at school, I would damn well <laughs> know phonics when I got there. So phonics is just learning words through sounds like, you know, cat, yeah. rat, fat, sat, and learning to read that way. So my, I don't know. I It might be kind of fanciful, but I like to credit my grandma as, if I have any kind of way with the language, um, It. it comes from my grandma making me read when i was 3 or 4. Um and then as far as books go, i don't know. i was i was always i was a nerd in school for sure. Like i was younger than other, the other kids and i was i was kind of a strange cowboy weird nerd kid that didn't really fit in. Cuz the other
0: kids weren't cowboy. The other kids weren't sort of like from the same kind of background.
1: Well, a lot of them were town kids, right? Cuz you go to yeah. they're still from a small agrarian town, but they're not actually, you know, Riding the bulls,
0: <laughs> right? Uh,
1: and so, what was I reading back then? I mean, I mean, I know that when I was a teenager, I went through a Tolkien phase, of course. Sure, yeah. But I was reading um, a lot of westerns when I was young, like Louis L'Amour and, and Zane Zane Gray, and all those guys. And then, as an as a late teen, early adult, I think I started reading James Michener because of, right. I, I like I liked his approach to sort of now he's those a little ex- square to me but i like i like that you could read about the history of a place through one of his novels in a fairly yeah those big
0: expansive those expansive stories that really sort of purported to take you inside a culture and a world
1: yeah, yeah. and his shtick was always to take a, a a geographical area and sort of give you a, a yeah. survey through time you know st- like the, like the source is about israel starting yeah. from the prehistoric man all the way to the war of 67 so yeah i'd say it's a Anyway, I read that stuff for a while, and then uh, what else? I'm trying to think. And well, our, I don't know. It was, you grew up in New York, or
0: yeah, I'm not I grew sure up about an hour like. outside of New York City. Yeah, okay. the
1: The Canadian education sort of uh, the the Canadian literature that we read was interesting in high school. Like, we there was a, a pretty looking back. I actually went back and collected it all. I'm rereading it again, but it was a pretty good uh, slate of stuff.
0: Like Robertson, Robertson Davies, and that kind of stuff. um,
1: There's a guy named. Well, we read Margaret Atwood because she's Canadian, right? right? Yeah. And we read. um, They read. They fed us a lot of dystopian shit. Actually, we had to read George Orwell. Yeah, we had. I posted about this a couple days ago. Yeah, I
0: saw that you posted Orwell, (laughs) Aldous Huxley. Uh, I was just surprised that I didn't see Vonnegut. I was surprised you didn't throw Vonnegut in there.
1: Yeah, I regretted not doing that after I it occurred to me after.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. I was like, how did he not put Slaughterhouse Five up there? I was Yeah, uh, my
1: base my bass player called me the next day and said, Dude, Slaughterhouse
0: Five and I was like, Fuck yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Good. I, I did. I felt it was I felt that it was missing. I was like, what's he doing? Why isn't that up there? <laughs> um but so yeah, that it, it's weird how how much that stuff is talking about our moment that 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 It's that a bit in, weird, right? isn't it? yeah it's not that um surprising how did you come back to so I, you were reading I I, I wasn't reading Mitchner really um only a little bit of it uh it was always for me a bit too stall there was something about it that I found uh off-putting but like you I was like reading everything I could get my hands on when I was a kid
1: my my, my dad was a big kid, a Michener fan so I just sort of got I, got I got brought into it that way he my dad was an interesting guy he was he was kind of I call him a Renaissance cowboy he was a veterinarian and a pro rodeo competitor and a rancher and wow. but he was also a watercolorist and kind of an amateur historian and an amateur archaeologist so he was a, a big influence but I've always had I, I I was working toward a history anthropology degree in school and I ended up quitting school because we were in university because we were touring too much but I've, I've always had that sort of bent to me too so I, I would always Read stuff like Michener with a grain of salt. Like it was interesting to me because I could sort of pick up on the history of a place and rely yes. on it to be fairly accurate. But yeah, he's a little he's a little stodgy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, for me, like I would read the, for for that kind of thing. I would have read back then. I would have read like Herman Wouk or something like yeah, that yeah. for those like yeah. big popular kind of yeah um, novels. That was and then the like, Lui- would pick up too. Yeah, and then like Louis Lamore I got to from Stephen King because Stephen King would talk about Louis Lemur sometimes when his have you essays. Read them, yeah, but only a few books. Like I'm not. I I know enough Louis L'Amour that I could talk about him, but I'm not a. I you'll, only you'll read him. You only but,
1: need to read a few, <laughs> right?
0: Uh, my grandpa read
1: but, them all, but you really only need to read a couple.
0: Yeah, but when you like, I read all of the Travis McGee books or something, and all the like Matsko. You know, like sometimes something gets you and you want to read all of it. Um, the Louis L'Amour, I I loved westerns. So so where I come at this is my my dad and I watched a lot of westerns together, like on Saturday afternoons. Yeah, I would like um. He and I would kind of like uh, lie down on the couch or in their bedroom, my parents' bedroom. My dad and I would just watch westerns all afternoon on Saturdays <laughs> and Sundays, and so that's I got completely absorbed into that in the world of the West that way. Have, and you, have had,
1: you written anything? Have you written any any film stuff that's western oriented?
0: I've you know, well, it's funny uh, in certain ways. Dave and I always think about a lot of the people we write about as gunslingers too. Like if you think about rounders, it's kind of a western story, right? <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. this. The sheriff, the, the the bad sheriff, the new guy who wants to take the spot. Like, there's a lot of the archetypes of it set in a modern yeah. context. And um, I've I've wanted to. It's really hard to. It's really hard to find like the. Uh, this is what I love about your album, man. Is you finding for all your records really is you found a a new way to talk about the West that 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 characterizes it accurately. You know, you talk about what's your line about the good guy? You know, whoever's the good guy is someone else's bad guy, essentially, right? You have a line. Yeah, similar to Yeah.
1: One person's outlaws, another man's saint.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's a really great way to look at those archetypes and, and, yeah. and reinvestigate them, you know, and, and I think you're doing that throughout the whole record.
1: You know, what you said about rounders. I remember when I was a kid, I was just, quite young when dad took us to see star wars yes and we walked out of it and dad was like that's the, one of the best westerns i've ever
0: seen <laughs> well for sure no for sure it is um and and uh, this th- those those archetypes are worth are are always worth sort of um teasing out and and re-exploring them but i had a question to ask you i wrote down actually which is what do you think? Because the, there is this romantic aspect, even when we talk about a guy like Chris Ledoux, right? And and I understand why Ledoux appeals to you because of... Uh, your dad it makes total sense to me if your dad was both a rodeo guy and an artist i mean that is chris Ledoux, right plus plus,
1: plus chris has the added uh resonance for me that he was like a total indie artist for a long time like selling right. cassettes out of the back of his truck at rodeos like it he didn't he it wasn't until garth brooks sort of well yeah got him hooked up that he'd be but he sold hundreds of thousands of cassettes just independently which appeals to the my punk rock uh, roots you know
0: yeah i mean and and for me that's still i'm I'm a closet Garth fan. Like I'm a big, huge Garth fan, secretly kind of. God I like don't Garth think I, too, actually. And and you know, I think He's that that well. verse.
1: He's aged well.
0: He has. I agree with you, and I've come to know him a little bit, and I quite like. I have personally. I, yeah, and oh, really? um, yeah, I've never talked about this ever, but yeah, never once in my life. But I once got to spend um, so my my writing partner Dave and I, we once got to spend the night at Garth's house in Oklahoma, which was incredible. And um, but that verse uh a worn out tape of chris LeDoux, lonely women and bad booze the only yeah th- right that that line for me is uh the thing that made garth brooks like who garth brooks is in a way even though it wasn't the biggest hit of it that he had yeah that's it was a, like
1: songs brings a lot of legitimacy huh
0: I, I I really think it does, right? Uh, comp- I mean, interested in the South America. Competition's getting younger, tougher Bronx. You know, I can't recall. We're not taking Chris Ledoux, uh, Lonely Women of Blues is the only thing. Uh, something at all. Like, like for me, that's how I got into Chris Ledoux. That's why I was like, well, what is this? Who is this? And then I started Really? You, you're one of
1: those people who actually found him through the Gar song, eh? That's
0: yeah, really totally. Cool. That's really cool. it's yeah, – how else would a guy like me know about Chris Ledoux, right? Well, I was, right? I was ask, still – <laughs> No, Garth. I heard that line and I was like, "Well, why is this worn-out tape of Chris Ledoux? Like, what does that mean?" You know. And then, then I found that other song that Garth did about, and then I went and investigated it and read about him, and then I got his records, which, yeah. by the way, people listening are are worth getting. The the what I do? You, are you a Lyle Lovett? Fan? I, I hear like Lyle Lovett and Jimmy Rogers crossed sometimes when I listen to your music.
1: Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of Lyle for sure, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, you know, one more thing about Chris that's interesting. I've gotten to know his his. um I don't know if you're aware of this, but that song on my record, "Dance with Your Spurs On." Yeah, that's I wrote that with Chris's son Ned.
0: Oh, I had no idea. No, I had no idea that.
1: Yeah, I've, I've gotten—I've never met Chris. It was, uh, but but our—but uh, I've gotten to become that's really wild. good friends with his family, which is awesome. They're great people. But yeah, that that song, that Gar song you mentioned, uh, uh, much was it much too M- young? Much too young. Yeah,
0: that's
1: like that's. I know a lot of bronc riders, and that's like a hymn for them. So he got it right, because you know when, you know when you're a singer or a writer, songwriter, and the people, who the subject people of who you're writing about, if they if they accept it, that means you did a good job, right?
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. You have to. The I'll say that's the same for what I do exactly. Yeah, of you course. Know. Well, that's why rounders
1: is so resonant, right?
0: It, yeah, all the things they have to like when when we were making even the show, you know, billions. It's like the people. You have to let the people in that world. at first have to think you've spent the time to understand what they're really thinking about and going through. But wait, this is the question I want to ask you, which is w- when it, it's really interesting that you don't want to fetishize the the the, the West uh, and the myth of the West book, but, but but it also seems that you're aware that we lose something by completely modernizing the myth. And it feels like there's a tension at play in your music about celebrating the things that made the the, the sort of myth of the American West and the Canadian West so resonant, but also holding it to account somehow. And it seems like you think about that a lot because that oh, runs yeah. through like a lot of your records.
1: Yeah. Well, if you get, I've spent a lot of time with people who, who are experts in that field. Like there's this event in Nevada called the, uh, elk, the Elko Nevada national cowboy Go- poetry gathering every year. And it's sort of a fa- music festival for cowboy music and cowboy, like real, working cowboy music and, and, and poetry and stuff. And those guys, like, you get into late-night discussions about this stuff, but, like, the West was never, ever really what people think it was. Like, it it was always just a big mess, like every other form of human culture or endeavor or whatever. But it's, it's like, and even from the very beginnings of, like, the I don't know, the, the iconic idea of the North American cowboy is – is, you know you can go almost anywhere in the planet and say cowboy and people have a kind of an idea <laughs> what you're talking about yeah but for as iconic as the, as the legend is it was a very short-lived thing because it didn't really the, the the real genesis of the American cowboy didn't start till the Texas longhorn herds were driven north after the Civil War so that's only 1870 right So the whole thing is only 120 years old and right from the beginning it was romanticized in the east and through dime novels and, and and film and stuff and there was a there was a symbiotic development between art imitating life and vice versa like there was lots of times when actual working cowboys started adopting stuff that was in the movies right and there's been this ping-ponging yeah. back and <laughs> forth ever since yes. so so the whole thing about the good guys and the bad guys and the white hats and the black hats that's all that's no different than any other group of human beings fucking around it's just it's not as it's not as clean and crisp as people would like to think about it and that's that's what that's where the interesting parts come into me
0: yeah that makes complete i mean that makes complete sense to me and of course it's the same thing that happened with like the godfather and the sopranos and the wise guys right where they started acting like the characters in the movie the whole yeah, the whole totally. thing goes circular around like that. It makes complete sense. What is your uh what's your writing process, man? Because I did notice or or sorry, process. Uh what is your writing process um in terms of like I noticed that it, it was five years between albums of original music. And uh whereas you put a lot of records in the original music out. And I'm wondering if you were struggling with what you wanted to say or how you wanted to say it or can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah in that that's true. Um I just kind of hit a kind of a plateau like i i've i've had an interesting career i'm very happy with it and i'm proud of it because i i've done exactly what i want to do all the way through but at the same time i'm not uh, i'm not george Strait yet right <laughs> so yeah. I, I mean i oh yeah, i should
0: say for my i should say for my audience who's listening that, that corb is a very big um artist in can like and uh you have a real following in america but in canada you're also a pretty big star so people should know that they might not know that but, yeah it so, yeah.
1: depends who you talk to but thank you <laughs>
0: yeah i mean you sell out you sell out the places you play in canada so
1: yeah yeah um right yeah yeah ideally yeah <laughs> <laughs> what uh shoot, But you're saying was... you hit a plateau i know what you were saying oh, yeah, you're yeah, saying yeah, you yeah. hit a plateau yeah so this new record uh, agricultural Ag tragic is number nine or ten i think and and then I had four rock records with the old band before that. So yeah, I don't know. I just kind of hit a place where I was, I was feeling like one of the things that motivates you is—it's probably the same for you. Uh, it motivates you is you think, well, if I really do a good job on this thing and really nail it, it's going to change things for the better. My shows are going to get bigger. And I get to play for different people, and it's going to—and I reached a point where I kind of plateaued, and I was sort of both in a career sense and also in an artistic sense. And I was just kind of mucking around for a while yeah. yes. and it happens, I think. And then I, I got a second wind and, and in the new record, we put more work than we've ever put into a record before I wrote way more songs for it. And me and the guys in the band did a lot more rehearsal ahead of time. And, and we were just really motivated. And the one, like the last record I'm really proud of before that is called cabin fever.
0: That's the one you and made with Dave. Cobb That's the one Dave Cobb produced. Or no, was that the that's one,
1: one after that. Okay. Okay. That was 2012. And I, I wasn't quite the one in the one with Dave Cobb. Dave did a good job, but I wasn't quite as prepared as I should have been. And I was experimenting with a different approach. I was experimenting. I, it was a conscious choice. I, I tend to be kind of an, I dig pretty deep on stuff and get, get prepared. But I was trying to, I was experimenting with kind of a, you know, off the cuff, happy accident, kind of hit the record and see what happens, kind of an approach. And it, didn't really work out as well as I'd hoped. There's some songs that I'm really proud of on that record, but it's not my favorite one in terms of how I approached it. So yeah. So I I kind of went went through a and that, and that the reason I did that was because I was just kind of searching for new ways of expression or just something new. And it sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Didn't really work for me. So I don't know. Since then it was that was 15 I think. So it's been 4 years, 5 years. And yeah, I just sort of Played live shows and didn't write for a while, and and then it's it's a cycle. And I just I just came back to it with a renewed renewed uh, excitement. Does, does it motivation. feel
0: strange? Does it feel strange to you when you're not writing?
1: No, because it always goes in cycles with me. Like I go through bursts of creativity over a period of months, and then I uh. I don't really like I, there's a guilt associated with it when I don't because of my rural <laughs> yes. work ethic yes. upbringing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But I'm I'm learning that, you know, that doesn't work that way. You gotta you gotta let the field lie fallow sometimes. And
0: when you're writing, when you're in one of those modes where it's creative, what is it? A I like, get up every day and I work. Like, what's a typical day look like for you when you're in the period of of writing? Or do you journal? Do you meditate? Do you just immediately get the guitar in your hands when you wake up? Like, what is the actual writing process and the, the day uh,
1: like? Mostly. When I was younger, I used to write more late at night. Now I write in the morning. Like uh, the, the most creative period seems to be from about I don't know nine till two. And I don't always write that whole time, but that that seems to be when I'm freshest. And what happens with me is it's interesting. I've done some a number of sort of sessions with with this is very a loose description, but the net, the Nashville style of writing where they sort of yes. Yes. meet at a, in a cubicle at ten a.m. and start from scratch and finish a song by by two that. That really doesn't work for me very often. Most of my songs take months or years to write, and and if I'm going to spend two or three or four hours in a session, instead of just hammering on one song for three or four hours, what I typically do is I'll cycle through six or eight, and and you know I'll I'll, I'll tweak a line here or come up with a verse there or change the melody here, and and they, so they're they're crafted over quite a long period of time. Mostly, there's occasional exceptions, but for the most part. I have a uh, fifteen twenty tunes on the go, and I just kind of pick away. Wow, from them.
0: that's amazing! And, and and with your guitar in hand, usually, or are you writing the words separately?
1: Uh, usually with a guitar in hand, but some songs are so dense, like research-wise, that you need to get start just get away from the like you know my horse soldier tune or yes, some of that stuff takes some research, and so those tunes, <laughs> if if I've got the melody already worked out. Then sometimes there's an element of just sitting down with a, pe- a pen and a paper and fitting fitting lines into the rhythmic structure. But for the most part, it's got a guitar. I've got a guitar.
0: Yeah, no, I'm totally. So this is my my big hobby is I I I, uh, I write songs. All it's like the way I blow off steam in a oh, way. Oh, do you play music I, too? Yeah, I write. Yeah, I take songwriting really seriously as a hobby. Oh, cool. Like I really try hard at it. You know, it's it's. Um, and, uh, and I did the Nashville, like, write with people thing one time. I, I think I did two trips where I did it. Um, so I know I what that, that whole weird. thing is. Well, yeah. You mean just meeting somebody and then you're going to sit down, talk, and write a song? Well, it seems yeah. you mostly write write your songs alone, right?
1: Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. I, the only co-writing successes I've had – actually, that's not true. I've had one or two that sort of worked that way. But for the most part, the, only, the, the bulk of the co-writing I've done, which isn't a lot, but has been with buddies and we, you know – we have a few beers and bang it around and it's comfortable. Like it's hard for me to get comfortable with somebody I don't know writing.
0: No, I, yeah, I just wrote a song with uh, a guy who, uh, who makes records who I love. And what happened was I posted something and it worked out great because I, uh, this guy makes albums, his name is Dave Hawes, and he's a great songwriter. And, uh, How do you spell it? H-A-U-S-E. He's made okay. a bunch of records. And, and, I know um, the name. Yeah, he's super good from Philly and his last record's called Kick is fucking incredible. But I posted something uh, a chorus that I'd written on on Instagram and Dave wrote something about it like, "Hey dude, that's actually good." Like on instant, I said, "Finish it with me." And he texted me and he's like, all right, I'll finish it with you. And so then we (laughs) together wrote this song and, and, and it was like an amazing experience to co-write in that way, because I love that dude's music and we know each other a little bit. And so it felt natural, but I I get what you're saying about yet. It does seem to work, right? Like I watch someone and I'm going to have him on the podcast, like Shane McAnally, who I think is a kind of a genius at being able to walk into a room And create these songs that like people love. Like it is, it's, it's a wild art form that that people do that well. I wish I could do it. What what made you try it? Did a publisher suggest you go to Nashville? I'm just interested in like the art because you're such a, you're such a pure artist in your work. I can't picture you like knocking on someone's door to do the two hour co-write.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It was just kind of an experiment. And I mean, I have friends in that world too, right? that do that like jada jada the gal that i that i, I sang um whiskey yeah. gin with she does a lot of that she's quite she's quite successful at it she's had a lot of a lot of hits um and where but she also has like a an artist career where she writes more it, to me i mean more interesting uh you know personal stuff that the that's her her own personal artist music you know
0: Oh, that, yeah, I went and got, when I, when I saw her name on your record, I went and downloaded stuff, but I haven't listened to it yet. Cause I was like, well, if he's working with her, she must be really good, but I haven't done the deep, uh, dive yet. All right. Just one or two more things that I wrote down to ask you. Cause we got, we just got rambly and I, this I didn't, um, no, it's great for me, but I, I, what, maybe, we, maybe you we,
1: should, maybe you should, maybe we should write a Western sometime.
0: <laughs> great well we could start writing away we could write a western song together and then we sure. can go from there uh that'd be awesome yes man you're yeah have you thought about writing a, a western movie
1: yeah yeah i kind of want to every country singer seems like gets to try to take a shot at acting in a in a western or two right and it, it's kind of good because like it if it's really crappy like no one cares because it's like oh, every, yeah. every country singer's in some crappy westerns. That's funny. <laughs> and like the occasionally, like Christopherson actually turned out to be an excellent actor, right? Well,
0: oh, he's awesome. In that in that Lone Star movie, he's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah he's good. Anyway, I I took some classes. I took some a- uh, acting classes in, in New York a few years ago. It was pretty fun.
0: All right. Well, we'll bring you in for an audition, but a, uh, as long as if, if I can get up on stage and play a song with you, you can come audition for a, a role. But, but um, I'll, I'll get out my my telly and and fake my way through it. Um, <laughs> here's all right. I'm gonna let's leave on a on a on a a serious ish note because of the way the world is now. When when you look at the agrarian way of life and how it's oh so for th- questions about s lazy age. So I want to say this to people listening to this podcast. Like the new album's incredible. It really is. I think one of the best albums of the year and an album that I've listened to since I got it over and over and over again. And I I'm blown away by it. You, but, but arguably like other than this album, the best song you've written is that S Lazy H song, which I could tell is incredibly, whether it's personally autobiographical or just, you know, family who lived it. Um, But it really makes every time I hear that song, dude, it makes me really think like sit back and walk around. It's, it's the kind of song that you can't listen to the next song after you hear it. Like, it's like Desperados waiting for a train or something. You know, you have to go walk around after you hear it. Like, <laughs> if you can hear Desperados waiting for a train, the original version. I I don't love the Highwayman version, but if if you can listen to the original Desperados and then just go on to the next song, there's something wrong with you. Like, you got to walk that. Huh? You got to walk that one off, right? <laughs> and and you got to walk off as Lazy H, I think. And um, but what do you think we lose when we lose the agrarian way of life for a- America?
1: Well. There's a lot of angles to that. One of the things you lose is is uh, the grasslands ecosystem because, yep. you know, there's only a small percentage. I think I wrote a piece about this for No Depression recently, actually. But, you know, as much as we hear about the, um, the uh, Brazilian rainforest and the coral reefs being threatened as ecosystems, the exact yes. same thing is happening to the prairie grasslands. And the only way... Like I think it's the statistic is something like only twenty or thirty percent of the native grasslands are left, and the rest in in North America, and the rest of it's been either plowed up to plant crops or or encroached upon by urban sprawl, whatever. But that ecosystem is is super important, and we're losing it quickly. And so, and ranching, like those grasses and stuff evolved over eons in sync with buffalo, and the buffalo would. Huh. Come in waves, eat the grass, shit all over it, with, give it yeah. nutrients, work it up with their hooves, and move on. And that, that's an integral link in the ecosystem. And th- as we lose large uh, family-owned ranches, like that's the only thing that we have left that, that sort of acts the same way with those. So, so if you lose those big ranches, the ecosystem withers and dies. So that's one thing we lose. Um, another thing is that I think this mirrors the scaling of most. Um, uh, parts of the economy, like trades or, or lifestyles, like I think, I think the same reason that we don't go to an old shoemaker to get our leather shoes, we go to the Foot Locker and buy Nikes, and and you know we we you know we buy a we buy a hamburger at McDonald's instead of getting a, a you know a pasture raised steak. It's just yeah. it's just a thing of scale, and I think that the in all aspects of our life as humans things are getting so big there's 8 billion of us now and we're just losing that sort of uh, craftsman approach to most yes. things that we consume and, and most things that we consume now are made in factories a lot of them overseas and you know you don't you're not wearing handmade shoes you're not wearing handmade clothes you're not eating uh, food that came from a or like a, like a I don't want to say organic because it means a th- different thing now but like a uh, it doesn't come from an agricultural setting that's that's in sync with nature, and and so we're losing a lot of uh, a lot of the you know craftsmanship, I guess you'd say that comes along with being like a, a family ranch versus a feedlot, right?
0: Yes. Well, I think that's that a was perfect. Kind
1: of but <laughs> no, that's no,
0: dude. Listen, Corb, that's because it actually speaks to what you do, right? Because you are a true craftsman, and this record is the work of uh, an artist who's also an artisan who is handcrafting these songs and this record in a way that you're hoping and you're trusting that there are people out there who are still interested in a non-mass produced version of what it is to make cowboy music modern cowboy music and that that's what I get from listening to the record and that's what I and I believe there are people out there who still want it
1: yeah, it definitely resonates with people. You know I, that that sort of rant I just went on about about uh, the way that we produce our our goods. It, yes. it actually, I often equate that to music because yeah. And it, this isn't me being judgmental because if people like radio country, more power to them. I, you know whatever. But the way the way that they do that stuff in the in the big music business is much like the way they make nike running shoes in a factory and i like to think about people that i look up to whether it's older guys like tom russell or or you know the old guys like christopherson or my buddy hayes carl or my buddy evan Felger yeah. from the turnpike jubadors any of the people that write the way that i'd like to write
0: daryl i was thinking of daryl scott too actually yeah sure. yeah yeah
1: I, I like to. Th- I, I think that we do it in a more craftsman, uh, crafts, craftsman like way, like the way that the way that a shoemaker would make shoes by hand, or a, a rancher would raise a beef on a farm on a ranch. Uh, you know, I, I think that's. I think the way that commercial, and I'm sure that's the same in pop music and urban music. I think there's probably a, a large scale lowest common denominator corporate approach to it, but then there's also, stuff that I consider to be more interesting happening on. Under the surface, like the underground acts that are doing stuff that's a little bit outside the lines, but I think the reason that we see uh, massive hits from the 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 radio people is it's an economy of scale thing, right? Like it's much easier for the corporations to to have something put together that that's going to appeal to the most people and offend the least people, and just it's a numbers game, right? Well.
0: Yeah, but then and once in a while, something real breaks through, and when yeah. something real breaks through, written by someone who cares, uh, that's when it, it it all comes together. And in fact, that is what Garth, that's why Garth was great, because Garth meant it. He meant every word that he sang, yeah, whether, sure. whether it also did that other stuff, he did mean it. And it's clear listening to your records that you mean it, and I hope that... Um, I hope that people go check out "Agricultural Tragic" when it's available in the states. A bunch of the songs are available now on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you get your music. Corb, you're av- you're on social media. On it feels like you're on Instagram more than you're on Twitter.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm on. Like I, I think my people also post some of the same stuff to Twitter, but I I do most of my stuff on Instagram. Yeah.
0: So you can find Corb on Instagram. You can find me on either place too at Brian Coppelman. Uh, you can email me at the moment, BK at gmail.com Corb. Thanks for taking the time to do this man. I'm uh, really glad that I got the opportunity to hopefully um, you know put you in front of some people who might not be aware of what you do and uh, I hope everyone goes out and, and listens to this album.